this is Belinda Rhodes with Guardian Daily on Monday the 1st of March. Today, aftershocks in Chile continue to terrify devastated communities. Well, you have to think that across Chile, a half million homes, probably one quarter of all the homes in this country will have to be demolished. I went to neighborhoods where just house after house was just falling to pieces and people sleeping on the streets and they know their homes are going to be demolished. So they're starting to get their goods out of the house before the aftershocks knock down what is left. We hear more about how the disaster will affect the country in the weeks to come. David Cameron gives a crowd-pleasing speech at the Conservative Spring Conference, but will it be enough to convince a sceptical electorate and calm Tory nerves? There are nerves amongst senior members of the party uh, about uh, the polls and indeed about yesterday's poll in the Sunday Times. They feel that the inevitability of a win is slipping away and they wonder whether there are concerns. A new angle on the credit crunch, dentists say stress is making more people grind their teeth. Right in the middle of the financial district, we have we're significant numbers of patients who either work in banking or, or the financial services. And when we look at our sector, treatment profiles of what treatment we're providing, we see there's a, a significant increase in treatment of that type of problem over the last two years. And we hear from Vancouver on the close of the Winter Olympics. How did Canada do as a host? Well, I certainly give uh, the city of Vancouver and the residents of Vancouver a gold medal. As regards the organisers, well, the first week was marked by a wide-ranging problems you know, from transportation uh, and the, the choice of the um, Cypress Mountain Resort for the uh, snowboarding and uh, freestyle skiing events was, was a gamble that really didn't come off. So, I mean, overall, maybe a, maybe a bronze for the, uh, the organisers. That's all coming up in Guardian Daily. So, we begin with the aftermath of Saturday's massive earthquake in Chile. At 8.8 on the Richter scale, it was Chile's largest in 50 years and brought devastation to a wide area. The government says two million people have been affected, while the death toll is expected to be in the hundreds. Fears of tidal waves around the Pacific abated yesterday, but coastal communities in Chile suffered badly. I asked Guardian writer Jonathan Franklin in Santiago what he had witnessed. Well, you have to think that across Chile, a half million homes, probably one quarter of all the homes in this country will have to be demolished. I went to neighborhoods where just house after house was just fallen to pieces and people sleeping on the streets and they know their homes are going to be demolished. So they're starting to get their goods out of the house before the aftershocks knock down what is left. And those aftershocks are still coming, are they? We had a huge aftershock this morning. I'd say it was 6.3, which in many cases is almost an earthquake on its own. Uh, you can't tell if the ground stops moving or if you're still dizzy, but everyone has this sense that everything around us keeps moving or shaking, and I feel like I've been on like a roller coaster or a Ferris wheel for the last day and a half. And how does the place look? Describe what you've seen, in, in, especially in the coastal communities. It looks like a hurricane more than an earthquake because there was just massive swells. In some places you have large boats that have been dragged 400, 500 meters ashore. There's roads that are blocked because houses have been floated across the roads and abandoned by the waves. It really looks like the aftermath of a tornado in many places. Boats shattered, trees upside down, and you know that one, that one standing house amid wreckage is kind of the classic scene that, I, that I'm seeing. 
And what, what's the mood among people? Are they still afraid? Are they um, pleased or disappointed with the government response? How, how are people feeling in general? People are increasingly desperate. What we're seeing is that Chile, as most people know, is a very long, skinny nation. You know, their communities affected are some 600 kilometers away from where we are, and most of them have no electricity, no water, uh, very little food. Most of the cell phone towers have been knocked down. So when journalists arrive at these towns, they're often the first outsider, and what they're finding is desperate people who have no water and don't know who's alive and who's dead. And they're just waiting for, for some kind of government help. Correct. They are waiting because the government is focusing on the major cities and some of the more dramatic situations, people trapped in high-rise that fell down in the city of Concepcion, uh, island, coastal islands that were nearly wiped out by these, uh, by these floodwaters. So uh, it will be many days before some of these communities see, see help. What we're beginning to see is massive looting uh, at first, the government tried to stop it by firing tear gas into the supermarkets, but now the supermarket owners are actually deciding to have people wait in line and they're allowed to take food out for free. And what about the, the government's resources in terms of dealing with this? Are, are they well equipped? Is this something they've been expecting for a long time? Chile is very well equipped. I think that if you were to ask experts, as I have, what would happen with an 8.8 .8 earthquake hit your city? Very few cities in the world could survive, such as Santiago. This is a city of almost 6 million people. And if you think only 40 people were killed, it's really a testament to how organized Chile is. The, the building codes are not only strict, but they're followed. You know, it's true that a single building fell down on a 14-story building. But for an entire nation, that's rather remarkable. So the, the country has done a very good job. They have stockpiles of food supplies. Yesterday morning, I spoke with President Michelle Bachelet, and I asked her about outside help what she was doing, and she said, we're not asking for outside help right now. And indeed, probably the most important thing for Chile right now is basic stuff like bulldozers and uh, backhoes. They need to clear the roads so they can get the supplies in there. Right now, even the highways are unmanageable because the overpasses and billboards have fallen onto the highway. So really what we'll see over the next two days is uh, major heavy lifting equipment getting the roads clear. Chile is a major mining company. They have massive resources in the private sector that are now being diverted you know, away from mining operations towards uh, cleaning, cleaning up these, these infrastructures like roads and getting the wreckage of bridges out of the way. And the president that you just mentioned there, she only has two weeks left to serve, doesn't she? Chile has a new president waiting to take office. What do you think will be the impact um, for him of this earthquake? Uh, he's coming in with uh, quite, quite a burden. He's already announced that he will keep major disaster relief officials in the office. Generally in Chile, everybody resigns and a new team comes in. But key uh, local, local political leaders and local and national rescue leaders will all be kept on. So they're trying to create a transition uh, for the rescue efforts. There's, of course, lots of jockeying going on between the current President Bachelet who is very good at these kind of crisis situations, as, w as well as the incoming president, Sebastian Piñera, who's trying to show the country that he can marshal the resources and organize it. Uh, Mr. Piñera will have a very strong test as he comes into power under difficult conditions. Jonathan Franklin in Santiago, and you can read more on that story, including maps and graphics, on our website at guardian.co.uk world.
Also on the website today, read the latest on the row between Greece and Germany over what the Greeks have been calling economic Nazism. That's at guardian.co.uk slash business. You can read the latest on the devastating storms that have been affecting parts of Europe at guardian.co.uk slash world. And of course, all the latest comment and political opinion at guardian.co.uk slash comment is free. Now, David Cameron can't have been all that pleased to see the latest YouGov poll in the Sunday Times yesterday morning as he prepared to rally his troops with a passionate speech at the Conservative Spring Conference. The poll showed that Labour is now only two percentage points behind the Tories, a gap that has narrowed dramatically since May 2008 when the Conservatives had a 26-point lead. The speech, with a theme of change and a different future, was, naturally enough, well-received by the conference delegates. The Guardian's Nicholas Watt was there too. What did he make of it? Well, this was a fantastically important speech for David Cameron because there had been an assumption amongst the Conservatives that if they weren't exactly cruising to a general election victory, they were reasonably sure that it was heading that way. There have now been a series of polls showing that the lead is narrowing and particularly significantly a YouGov poll in the Sunday Times yesterday which showed that the Conservative lead over Labour is now now just two percentage points. Uh, So the background to David Cameron's speech is clearly he's got his work cut out, clearly he has not, as the great phrase go, sealed the deal with the electorate and so he needs to show uh, the electorate that he can seal that deal. And uh, he started off the speech by saying, I know that the British people do have questions about me and the Conservative Party. In other words, they have doubts. And he said, I'm going to address those questions and I'm uh, going, going to answer them. And uh, he started off by saying people want to know what the Conservative Party is about and has the Conservative Party changed? And he said, yes, it has. And the most powerful example for that, he said, is I said, uh, David Cameron, that I would change the way we select candidates. And then he pointed to a series of candidates that have been selected from black and ethnic minority communities. He said that's a big change. He said people want to know what does the Conservative Party stand for. And he outlined a series of policies on the economy, on schools, on significantly the NHS and said, I love the NHS. People obviously would remember that uh, the NHS was very, very important to him uh, in helping out with his late son, uh, Ivan. Um, so he was sort of addressing those questions. And then the final thing he talked about is, is me, David Cameron. What do you think about me? And he said, uh, obviously, I believe that I am up to the job. That was the key message they wanted to get across yesterday. But on the policies, which is what we've all been waiting for from the Conservatives, was there enough detail or was he still speaking in fairly general terms, do you think? Well, David Cameron uh, wasn't uh, announcing any specific new policies yesterday, apart from one uh, little announcement that came to a surprise, as a surprise to some members of the Shadow Cabinet, and that is him saying that in the manifesto he will set out in detail what the Conservative pledge is to recognise marriage in the tax system. Now, you'll remember that uh, he had a bit of a wobble earlier this year when he was asked on the BBC, uh, are you going to recognise marriage in the tax system? And he said, well, I hope to, but I'm not sure whether I will. And that's because, obviously, with the public finances in such a poor position, he has to act cautiously. Yesterday in his speech, David Cameron said, yes, we not only will recognise it, but we'll set out how we'll do it. That came as a surprise to some members of the Shadow Cabinet. They knew that this was being planned, but they didn't know it would be announced uh, yesterday uh, in the conference speech. 
So that was the only sort of specific new policy. But no, David Cameron, it, the speech wasn't designed to set out a series of new policies. It was designed to answer those broad questions, those broad doubts that the electorate have. But on the point about general policies, there is a feeling amongst the Conservatives that they sort of launched a sort of a mini election campaign from the new year when they started releasing, releasing draft elements of their manifesto. They started out with health. They now think that was a mistake because what it meant was that the focus turned on them. They almost looked like a mini government and that allowed Labour to sort of attack them, act as an opposition party. And they now think now they need to return to the spirit of Margaret Thatcher in 1979, who in her famous manifesto concentrated on generalities and themes rather than specific nuts and bolts. So it's unrealistic perhaps to expect any more detail in the, in the two months uh, leading well, up to the election. Well, it's a very difficult balancing act for any opposition party about what do you do in terms of setting out policies. On the one hand, you need to show that you have a serious programme, because if you don't have a serious programme, you won't look credible. But equally, you don't want to be too specific because you box yourself in and you provide ammunition for your opponents. And most specifically, when you have, as we have now, a very difficult economic climate, things can change. Your policies might have to change. So it is always a very, very difficult balancing act. But what they've decided is that they need to focus their campaign on core messages, dealing with the economy, uh, embracing the NHS, uh, lowering business tax. And that's what they're going to focus on from now on. And what was the mood at the conference on Sunday morning um, before David Cameron's speech? Had, had this worrying poll put the wind up them? Was there an air of panic? There are nerves amongst senior members of the party uh, about uh, the polls and indeed about yesterday's poll in the Sunday Times. They feel that the inevitability of a win is slipping away and they wonder whether there are concerns. But it would be fair to say that after the speech... Uh, shadow ministers were buoyed. It was a speech without notes. They thought uh, that David Cameron had addressed people's uh, concerns about the Conservatives and they felt that over the weekend the Conservative Party had sort of honed their message down to the key campaigning principles. And I'll just have to see whether that starts to pay off in the polls. Nicholas Watt there. Coming up later in the programme, our assessment of how Vancouver did as host to the Winter Olympics, which ended yesterday. But first, bringing new meaning to the term credit crunch, there's evidence that our teeth may be suffering because of stress caused by economic troubles. Some dentists are reporting an increase in the number of patients coming to see them with damage caused by grinding their teeth. I talked to Edinburgh dentist Dr Jan Maidment about what he's been seeing in his surgery. Typically, uh, someone will come in and they will have broken, say, part of one of their, often a back tooth, off. And that can happen just anyway because of normal wear and tear. Um, but we may see a pattern, in, especially with someone who's a regular attender, that this isn't the first time that something similar has happened. And there are maybe one, two, three other teeth over a period that it's been happening to. Uh, we then look more generally at the other signs on other teeth where they may have... Uh, chipped corners off which hasn't brought them in um, but they've thought has been normal wear and tear but when we look at the patient as a whole in the context of how old they are and and so forth we say well actually this pattern of the wear on the teeth here is greater than we would expect for their age with normal use and then we start to think well 
have we got something here that is more than just normal tooth wear? And then we can we may investigate the muscles and, and look for signs of clenching or grinding of the teeth. The patient may come in with a more vague pain in the face that they thought was toothache, but when we investigate it, we actually find that there's nothing wrong with the teeth, but it's the muscles that are giving the pain, for example. And this kind of pattern is something that you and other dentists have noticed specifically since the credit crunch, is it? In our practice, because you know we're in the centre of Edinburgh, we're right in the middle of the financial district. We have you know, significant numbers of patients who either work in banking or, or the financial services sector. And we've seen more evidence of this than before 2008. You know, we've, we've been established in that part of Edinburgh for you know, 26 years. And when we look at our um, treatment um, profiles of what treatment we're providing, we see there's a, a significant increase in treatment of that type of problem over the last two years. So what can you do? I mean, obviously there are things you can do in terms of repair, but what can you do to try and stop people doing this? Well, there are a number of things. I mean, the the muscles that operate the jaw are the the kind of key to this, really, because once they become tense, there's an underlying tension in them, uh, or, or there are tender spots in them, then as soon as someone falls asleep, then they may... Um, go into a kind of spasm and clench the teeth together and cause damage that way or, or set up a, a pattern of grinding. Um, and because you know, they've got into that habit, they will then continue to do that. It's a subconscious thing. One can't just stop it automatically. So uh, we can, for example, by uh, making a, a device that fits over the teeth, like a, a mouth guard, that, that sports people wear, we can interrupt the, the spasm, get the muscles to relax off, and discourage people from the clench or the grind. So not just treat the symptoms of the pain or the broken tooth, but we can try and treat the underlying condition, which is the, the habit of the clenching and the grinding. And what about um, other methods that actually um, go to the, the root of the problem, the stress itself? I mean, do you recommend things like hypnosis or yoga or anything like that? Well, yes, I mean, depending on the severity of the problem, it's glib to say we can say to someone, well, just relax, you know, or or try and relax a bit more before going to sleep. Maybe just massage the muscles yourself if you find that you notice this tender spots. That will relax the muscle, and then it's less likely that it will then go into spasm when you fall asleep. Uh, One step up from that, you can say, well, there is a hypnosis is is an option. Um, If someone is given the appropriate advice, they can use self-hypnosis, hypnotists will use that technique hypnosis is is a route that we have recommended in the past and does have a, a place can be helpful in this respect dr jan maidment speaking from edinburgh so yesterday saw the triumphant closing ceremony of the winter olympics with canadians celebrating their own myriad medal successes the uk's one and only medal winner amy williams carried the flag for britain So as the skiers, skaters and snowboarders disappeared in a flurry of flag-waving, how would the world look back on the performance of the hosts? I asked The Guardian's Lawrence Donegan what medal he would give them. Well, I certainly give uh, the city of Vancouver and the residents of Vancouver a gold medal. Uh, The city itself is uh, is just spectacular. It's like Glasgow with beautiful scenery. It did rain a lot, but it's gorgeous. The setting is gorgeous and it's compact, which really lends itself 
to a, a big sporting occasion like an Olympics so you, people can get around. The venues are pretty accessible and pretty close by. Uh, so that was great. And the mood on the streets was fantastic, you know, and the venues were all full and the food was reasonably priced. So um, from that point of view, it was wonderful. As regards the organisers, well, the first week was marked by a, a wide-ranging problems, you know, from transportation. Uh, obviously, the opening ceremony was uh, slightly botched. Um, uh, and the, the choice of the um, Cypress Mountain Resort for the uh, snowboarding and uh, freestyle skiing events was was a gamble that really didn't come off. I mean, it, they sort of took a punt and they would get snow and they didn't. So the consequence being that they didn't have enough snow to build spectator areas, so 28,000 people had their tickets cancelled, which was a, a real shame because the events themselves up there were, were, were great. So I mean, overall, maybe a, maybe a bronze for the, uh, for the organisers. Some of the problems obviously aren't Canada's fault. Obviously, they, they can't be held responsible for the weather. But they have been criticised for being too jingoistic, haven't they? Well, there has been a little bit of that around. It, was very, I mean, it struck me, this aspect, it struck me... There is a balance to be struck in these things. Of course, you're hosting the Games. You have a, a certain national and civic pride in the Games. You want your own athletes to do well. But, I mean, there is a balance to be struck. You've got to remember, this is... I mean, whilst this is a national occasion or a national event, it's also an international event. Um, and it kind of struck me the other day as I stood in line 45 minutes to get into the Olympic merchandising store. Uh, and I finally got in, and I was sort of sifting through the shelves. And virtually everything is branded Canada. And I just thought that was emblematic of the slight uh, dissonance in tone I felt that it was, it was a bit too much Canadian and perhaps not enough you know, international. But again, it, it's a very delicate balance to strike and, and perhaps you know, they, they kind of failed a, a, just a little bit. And of course, there was also on the podium campaign, which is the, you know, the four-year campaign run by the Canadian uh, Olympic Association to you know, ensure that Canada finished the top of the medal table. So they spent lots of money training up athletes. Part of the Olympic rules are that the hosts can you know, dominate you know, the use of the venues and the run-up to the games, and they can that other competitors from other nations are only allowed limited access. Of course, it slightly backfired up in the slider whistling track with the death of the Georgian Luger, which opened up all kinds of questions. It was a very, very difficult track, the sliding track, and the question was raised, did the competitors from other nations get enough time to practice but the Canadians, I mean, they have done well. Um, they must feel very proud of their achievements. Yeah, they do, uh, and rightly so. Uh, although they did have a very uh, troubling first week. Uh, I think they won seven medals in the first eight days, so there was all sorts of national hand-wringing. Uh, before the Games, the Canadian Sporting Authorities of the, the Olympic Committee had set the goal of finishing top of the medal table, which, which they didn't actually do in, in, in medals won. Uh, the United States did that. But Canada won more gold medals than any other country, and, and you know, and... Uh, when I was a lad growing up uh, and looking and thought these things were very, very important, I always counted gold medals as the most important thing. And what do you think London has got to learn from the organisation of, of these games? Well, it was very, very interesting, uh, uh, you, know, in the after, you know, two years after Beijing, where um, in Beijing you had a real sense that uh, the games were one thing and the city was another thing, and, and never the twain shall meet. There was virtually no intermingling. Uh, of the two, you could have gone to p parts of Beijing and not not known that the games were on, and you could have gone to the games arenas or to the Olympic Village and not known that there was a city somewhere out there. But in Vancouver, uh, there's been a real sense that the the games are the city and the city are the games, and they got that absolutely right. It's, it's been terrific. Um, and if London can, in some sense, you know, bring the games into the city and the city into the games, 
Uh, London would do very, very well to if we could emulate that. As regards things that uh, we perhaps uh, or London might want to avoid is, is not to be so thin-skinned in the face of criticism. There was clearly uh, all sorts of organisational problems in the first first week, and these were pointed out by both the Canadian uh, press and the international press. And <laughs> it seemed very, very odd. I mean, there was a time where the, I mean, the, the bad boys of the Olympic Games were the British press, and our sin was simply to point out that there were, the, there were glitches and there were problems. It's part and parcel of, of, of staging the Olympic Games. People are going to look at them and judge them. And you have to be self-confident enough in what you've done and believe in what you've done and, and be able to, to, you know, if there are criticisms, if there are justified, accept them and move on. Lawrence Donegan in Vancouver there. And that's all from Guardian Daily today. The producers today were Chris Wade and Tim Mabee. I'm Belinda Rhodes. Thank you for listening. Guardian Daily. News and reports from around the world.